The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Everybody, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mo Vedla sitting in for Leslie today. I am a previous guest of Leslie Marshall, and I uh, feel the greatest privilege today. What an honor to be sitting in for her. Uh, those are Jimmy Choo's that are too awesome to fill, but I'm going to do the absolute best I can. Um, I'm so grateful to Leslie Marshall for letting me sit in and to Mark Grimaldi, her executive producer. I'm looking forward to spending the next hour with you. I have four special guests coming on to join us. Um, I do want to share a couple of things, uh, a little bit about me. Uh, so you wonder, like, who the hell is this guy sitting in for Leslie? Um, I, I have the privilege uh, and the honor, and it is it has been a privilege and an honor to serve my nation as the first Latino American and the first LGBTQ American to serve twice in the White House in a senior executive role. I had the incredible experience uh, to be uh, CFO and senior advisor to Vice President Al Gore, and most recently the director of management and administration and senior advisor as well to Vice President Joe Biden. So I um, I look back on those uh, times as in, with incredible memories, as you can imagine, uh, and uh, they forever altered and changed my life. And I hope that today I get to share a little bit through through the guests I've picked and through the topics that we've picked to discuss uh, will indicate to to you uh, the things that I'm most passionate about and hopefully things that we will be addressing when we beat Donald Trump in November. Uh, speaking of beating Donald Trump in November, I want to uh, make sure that everybody understands that whatever I say today um, or whoever I have on as a guest and whatever they say, that we are all entitled to our opinions. We must respect one another for those opinions. We don't have to agree, but we can respectfully disagree. Um, but most importantly, uh, I live by a simple mantra, and that is that I like to seek common ground. Um, and so please remember that this whole show will be in the spirit of seeking common ground and for us to all remember whoever we support in this Democratic primary, and we all support different formidable, wonderful candidates, um, whoever we support at the, a certain point and at the appropriate time, we will coalesce and we will come together to beat this horrible, horrible person named Donald Trump. So, uh, on that note, let's get started. Um, I'm absolutely, uh, by the way, I'm going to, before I get go to the first guest, I want to uh, beg everybody's patience. I want to ask you for your patience. I've never done this before. And I do want to share this from the bottom of my heart in my gratitude to Leslie and to Mark that I remember vividly being uh, a little Latino boy sitting in a classroom, in a public school classroom in the southern tip of Texas. 
on the Mexican border and dreaming that one day I would get to host a radio show or a TV show. And here it is today, my lifelong dream come true. Frankly, I had given up on the dream. And now Leslie and Mark have allowed me to make my dream come true. And so I thank you all for being with us today. So let's get to our first guest. Our first guest is Rick Herrero. Rick is the executive director of the Cuba Study Group. In that capacity, he manages the organization's initiatives, such as setting strategic objectives and educating policymakers on policies that improve the well-being of the Cuban people at home in Cuba and in the diaspora. Ricardo Oric is a strategic communications and public affairs professional with close to two decades of experience working at the intersection of international relations, politics, media, and philanthropy. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mo, and congrats on your first show. Oh, thank you. You're my very my first show, and you are my first guest. How's that? Honored. So, honored. Uh, I'm honored. I'm honored, Rick. Thank you for being with us. Rick, I invited you on because um, last Sunday, I think, on 60 Minutes, I watched um, in horror, frankly, I was so deeply offended by something that Bernie Sanders said while he was being interviewed by Anderson Cooper in referencing some type of a bright side to Fidel and Raul Castro's regime and their communist uh, government in Cuba. And I thought, what better person to invite to be on today? I would love to hear your, I, you know, I just shared my opinion on it, but I actually want to hear from you, who is the executive director of the Cuba Study Group. Am, am I overreacting to that? Should I not have been offended? And what are your thoughts on that at first? Um, and second, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how it might impact the Democratic electorate in the state of Florida, which is such a crucial swing state. Yeah, so you're not overreacting at all. What he said was offensive. And uh, we need to understand how, uh, how his statements were highly counterproductive, particularly in a place like Florida, right, a state that Democrats cannot take for granted how these comments were counterproductive in, in, in three particular ways. First of all, he was praising Fidel, you know, the most divisive figure in Cuban history and probably still the most reviled person in Miami to this day, for something that he did at the height of the revolution when thousands were being persecuted and killed and children were being torn apart from their families. That is what folks in Miami remember from Cuba to a large degree. And... By talking about this and praising one, one element of this larger experience, it, what it does, it triggers these wounds that have molded Cuban-American identities for decades, regardless of party affiliation. This, cross, you know, this, this cuts across the board. Uh, second, he's doing it as the frontrunner of the Democratic primary right now. So he's forcing both Hispanic Democratic voters and elected officials down there to immediately distance themselves from him less than a month before the primary. Now, now, Sanders likes to say that his critics down there are all corporatist Democrats, but it's not, it's not just coming from corporatist Democrats, whatever, whatever that means. It's coming from Democrats across the board. They're the ones that are having to manage the local blowback from his comments while he's out campaigning elsewhere. And third, not only did he praise Fidel with a sense of misinformed nostalgia, but he also doubled down on his praise without apologizing to those voters that he offended 
when he when he again when he commented on this uh, in a town hall uh, event on CNN uh, uh, day after, um, and then he also complained about the Congress people urging him to stop, to, to, to urging him to stop making these stop these comments because they are supporting under other candidates. So that kind of arrogance and narcissism reminds people of Trump in many ways. And that creates a great sense of anxiety for many voters who already think of that Trump governs as a dictator. That by electing Bernie... That, uh, if I could just jump in for a second and share this with you, uh, don't you think it in some ways it also kind of affirms the fear of uh, non-Bernie Sanders supporters, that non-Bernie Democrats, um, that he's going to be a drag on down-ballot races. If if this is the kind of comments, these are the kind of comments he's going to make, and your you know, electeds down there are having to run away from him, it kind of proves that point, doesn't it? That's exactly right. He Look, there is a path. It's a very narrow path, but there is nonetheless a, a feasible path where where Bernie could win, should he win the nomination, could win the presidency without Florida. But if he doesn't lose Florida, I mean, if he doesn't win Florida, all those down-ballot Democrats are going to get punished. Because yeah. if he loses yeah. that state, they're going to lose. And, and um, you know, I think, I think you kind of alluded to this already, but um, if you would just share a few thoughts about how this might – impact the uh the primary race down there but more importantly the general um i mean could this uh irre- irreparably damage the democratic party going into the general it could it could make it very problematic for the democrats remember florida is a state that's won on the margins the last gubernatorial race was won on 30,000 votes out of over 8 million cast it was six recounts in 2018 during the midterms. So you can't really take any voter block for granted because any voter block can make you or break you. So absolutely, making insensitive comments that alienate a key voting block in Florida is incredibly risky. Arguably the the uh, largest and most powerful key voting block in Florida, arguably. Well, I would say perhaps in South Florida, there's other very significant voting blocks throughout the state. You have the Puerto Rican voting block, for example. That's pretty sizable in, in central Florida. Well, I meant, I meant Latinos in general, yeah. Yeah, so, yes. That would and so correct. I want to go back to the comment again because, um, you know, the, 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 best, uh, the, the best thing he uh, – let me reword that. What he, what he was highlighting – was, quote-unquote, the success of Fidel, Cast- Fidel Castro's literacy program. And I just, um, uh, I was just uh, in awe over highlighting a program that the reason, any way you slice it up, Rick, you, they were teaching those kids to read so that they could read their propaganda and promote the communism and um, and overthrow and such. And so it was just, a, well, listen, Rick, I, I, we've got to go, unfortunately, and we got to go to break. I, I am so grateful to you for being on with us today. It means a lot to me. Uh, keep fighting and uh, count on me for support. Brother, brother, brother. 
there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mo Vela sitting in for Leslie Marshall. Um, so let's get to my next guest. As I stated in the, in the opening moments, I have invited people to discuss issues that matter a great deal to me, and I hope that matter a great deal to all of you. Um, my next guest is Sally Garrigan. Sally Garrigan was a high school junior at Columbine High School on April 20th, 1999, when two students went on a rampage killing 13 and wounding 24. Nearly 24, excuse me, nearly 24 years later, she joined Moms Demand Action and the Everytown Survivor Network, where she found a much needed community and was driven to tell her own story. Sally became an Everytown Survivor Fellow in 2019. She makes her home in Alexandria, Virginia, with her husband, where she occasionally teaches theater at area schools and cares for their five-year-old daughter and one-and-a-half-year-old son. Sally, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Hi, thank you for having me, Mo. In the spirit of full disclosure, Sally and I are personal friends. Um, She and her husband, Patrick, are two of the most amazing souls I think I've ever met on my journey. They have this joie de vivre and this incredible spirit of love and peace. And so, Sally, I wanted to have you on because I've been watching you and your work uh, against gun violence uh, through the Moms Demand Action Program. And I wanted you to come and share with us a little bit about what inspired you uh, to get involved. So if you would, what what did uh, two decades after you watched some of your friends and classmates uh, get killed right in front of your eyes? What uh, prompted you two decades later to, to take a stance and, and get out there and start trying to change uh, uh, this incredible um, tragedy that we keep suffering over and over. Well, um, first of all, I just want to say what an honor it is to be on your show um, because um, you are actually one of the first people I have met um, when we moved to D.C. And um, I think politics, I was a little always a little afraid of it because I really didn't know much about it. And um, I just um, learning from you and uh, you made participation feel accessible to even somebody like, you know, like me. So I want to thank you for um, teaching me the ways when we first met you on the rooftop. Um, But um, to get um, to your question, um, it wasn't until um, the Parkland shooting, it felt so eerily similar to my own experience um, that I finally found my voice in the movement. Uh, for, for us, 20 years ago, we let the adults tell us um, that everything was going to be okay and it would never happen again. And uh, right. we were failed. And it was the Parkland student to say, um, this, is, um, this isn't going to work this time. Um, and we're going to use our voices. So thanks to them, um, I, I found Moms Demand Action in the Everytown Survivor Network, and they kind of helped kind of bring out my voice and showed me that my story ma- mattered. Isn't that amazing? Wow, Sally, um, I don't want to, I I actually want to share something with you. I don't think in all the time that we've known one another, I've never shared this with you, but April 20th on that horrible day in your life where 
you had to you know watch this carnage at the hands of these two horrible people in Columbine. It happens to be my father's birthday. And ever since Columbine, on Daddy's birthday, unfortunately we lost him a couple years ago, but on Dad's birthday, he made it a point to remind us that uh, of the people we lost who were your friends and your classmates and your teachers. And so um, anyway, I've never shared that with you. It has a a very... um, emotional kind of double meaning to me. So uh, I want to talk to you about the current presidential race when it comes to gun uh, violence and gun reform. Um, Obviously, uh, through your work at Moms Demand Action, uh, I'm assuming that one of the uh, areas you guys um, participate in is uh, the changes of policy and obviously impacting change in the political process as well. Um, so what is your take on, uh, you know, obviously most of the, uh, if all of the, I'm sure all the Democratic candidates uh, want to see gun reform. What are some of the things that your organization is pushing and promoting and advocating for that we can change uh, nationally that might uh, keep us safer? You know, um, it's wonderful that now, as we listen to the debates, that gun violence prevention is in the forefront of all the candidates' mind, um, which has never been like that before. So already I feel just the the work of, it's not just Moms Demand, but all these gun violence prevention groups um, have kind of created this incredible movement. Um, And we're realizing that um, collective stories and people in our communities are ready to show up and um, fight. And um, I think that's the most important is that our voices do matter. People are listening. Um, This is um, gun violence is so toxic that we see this as um, that we need to fight and make a change. And um, some of the um, biggest things is even the House. It was a year ago. They passed H.R. 8. And, um, and Sally, unfortunately, oh, I hate to cut you off. Will you come back another time? Because I want to hear more about it. And thank you for what you're doing. And, and folks, yeah. if you want to get involved, please join Sally in helping us all join together to, to uh, reform gun violence. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mo Vela sitting in for Leslie. Um, Wow, I'm going to be eternally grateful to Leslie and Mark Grimaldi for this opportunity. It's a dream come true for me to be sitting here and hosting her show. So let's get on to my next guest. As I said in the intro, uh, my guests all are here to talk about issues that matter a great deal to me. Um, And my next guest is Lorena Chambers. Lorena Chambers is the CEO of Chambers Lopez Strategies, is the only Latina and one of only two women to have produced broadcast commercials for a United States presidential campaign. Amazing. In 2018, she was the media strategist for Power Pack, Georgia's IE campaign supporting Stacey Abrams in her run for governor of Georgia and for Senate Majority Pack's win in Nevada to elect Jackie Rosen to the U.S. Senate. She's a visiting research affiliate at Yale University, where she is completing her dissertation in U.S. history from the University of Michigan, Go Blue, and soon we will be calling her Dr. Lorena Chambers. Lorena, welcome to the show. 
Oh, my goodness, Mo. Thank you for that introduction, and it's so great to be with you to complete your one of your many dreams. Thank you. Oh, I'm so I'm honored. I really am honored to have you on the show. It's I've you know long, long admired your work, um, and it just fills my heart with such pride. So let's jump right into what I know is a shared passion of yours and mine. Something that both of us have dedicated uh, the vast majority of our professional lives to, which is the Latino community, the Latino electorate. Uh, the Latino market segment. Um, I, I, you know, I've always uh, respected your expertise, and I really want to get into some questions about um, where we are as a Latino population in the sense of do the our number. Let's start with that. We now have you know millions of us, right? And we're the fastest growing ethnic population in the United States. Um, and in many states, we're majority-minority now, combining with African-Americans and Asian-Americans. So as Latinos with such big numbers, do you think that those numbers are fairly represented in our role in the economy and in politics and in business? I mean, are, are those numbers accurately reflected in all of those sectors? Well, it depends how we're defining accurately reflected, right? Because we are crucial, our community across the country and all 50 states are crucial to each state's economy, each state's role in making a stronger democracy. We pay into Social Security at a much higher rate than we actually pull out from the system, for example. And we're a constant force in housing, in education, um, in the, all the economies that help support our, um, our, our, each of our states. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm here getting some, here, uh, some, some um, echo. Oh, and, in, and in every one of these cases, What's important to understand is that we have a variety of communities, right, that come from different Latin American countries, in addition to many families who have been here literally for four and 500 years, right, since we've been, the border crossed us. So it's an amalgamation of different kinds of communities that come together that get put all into this one category of Hispanic or Latino, or more recently, Latinx. And so there's a variety of interests, and there's a variety of information that needs to get out to these communities to basically compel them to vote. Right. And, and let's, that's a, I mean, what a great segue, actually, to the next question I wanted to ask you. Let's get into the current election. Um, first, of course, the question has to be, uh, can the Latino electorate of the United States as we see so often people saying that we actually can make a difference in this election. Do, do you agree with that assessment that we could make or break this election? Absolutely. We can always do that. And part of it is because of the way the battleground states, uh, now we're going to get into a little bit of the weeds here, the battleground states are set up. So it's not that Latino voters in one particular state are the majority um, I think other than maybe New Mexico, but they're not the majority in all these states. But um, I think one of your previous callers said, we're on the margins. This is how we win in the margins, and we can sway every single state election, especially in those crucial battleground states. And I'll just give you a quick rundown, like on Super Tuesday. We've got huge states like California with 415 delegates. 
Texas, 228, Colorado, Virginia, North Carolina. Those are just a few of the states where Latinos actually will count their votes to be able to sway how that, those elections in each of those states actually come out. And that's where we make a huge difference. Well, when you put it in that context, it's mind-boggling, isn't it, that you just listed those states on Super Tuesday. And uh, that's a great lead-in to my next question, which is, um, of all the campaigns on the Democratic side right now, I'm not going to ask you to to comment on the Trump side because, frankly, um, I don't know of a human being who's been more despicable and horrific to our Latino community with his anti-immigrant and racist viewpoints. So I'm going to just pretend he doesn't exist right this second for for a little bit. And let's talk about the Democratic candidates. Um, I'm going to put you just a little bit on the spot. I'm not going to ask you who you're supporting, but I am going to ask you if you could go through each of the five majors uh, and give them a grade uh, since you are literally one of the nation's leading Latino political strategists, I, I think it would be really nice for us to hear from you. What grade do they get so far on their Latino political outreach on behalf of their campaigns? Let's start with um, Amy Klobuchar. Well, first, that's a very great question. And let me premise my answers with this. It is important to understand that Latino voters are not new. They're not new to our country. They're not new to the Democratic Party. And frankly, you and I, Mo, have been doing this for much, much too long, it feels at times. Every two years, constantly, my entire adult life, I have talked about the importance of Latino voters. I have PowerPoints that are literally 20 years old. And I think what's incredibly important is that This is about choices for each of the campaigns in that who has made the investment to communicate with this incredible, important segment of the electorate? Who believes in the power of Latino voters? Because as you and I know, having worked on so many presidentials, campaigns are about choices. They're about choices about messaging, choices about who to visit, where to go, but also about resources. And so I think it's incredibly important to understand um, I'm just going to go, I'm going to, if I, if you don't mind, I'm just going to reverse it and say, you know what, the Sanders campaign has done an incredible job in, in reaching out to Latino voters, and we saw it all come back to them in Nevada. And so, therefore, what happens in Texas, what happens in California, um, we're going to see the role of Latino voters really important uh, and, and, and exactly what it takes to be able to communicate with them, get them excited, and get them involved. So I don't mean to turn your question around, but, I mean, let's just say the Sanders campaign, it's not one person there. It is coming from the very top, the candidate, the campaign management staff who took an important role and understood what it means for them to win. And so I do have to give them kudos above and beyond. Now, I can answer all of the other candidates as well, but I think the delegate count really does. I don't need to give them grades. I think the delegate count is enough of a grade, right? Bernie Sanders right now has 45 delegates. Pete has, Mayor Pete has 26. Biden has 15. Warren has eight. And Amy has seven. And so while I don't feel comfortable grading them each because I haven't studied each of their outreach, 
I think it actually shows in the numbers of delegates that they have. And I think it's a really important notion as we move forward, especially at the beginning of this conversation, the total number that is actually required um, to win this nomination. The only thing I would say, thank you, by the way, and I, I, I don't mind you having uh, turned the question a little bit because um, I think it's fair to say that uh, let's just instead of giving them A, B, C, D, E's or F's or there's no E, but <laughs> A, B, C, D or F, let's just say everyone needs to improve. How's that on Latino outreach? Absolutely. They need to invest more money in speaking to our community and asking our community to vote for them. Um, We're down to like just about a minute and a half, and I want to get this quick question in. One of the biggest misperceptions, misconceptions about uh, Latino political strategy that I have encountered, and I want to get your expertise on this, um, people just think it's enough to translate an English ad into Spanish or to just convert your English uh, door hangers into Spanish. Um, that That's just ridiculous, is it not? I mean, uh, I want to I just get your thoughts on how nuanced and how uh, culturally uh, respectful la- the language, Spanish language in particular, needs to be uh, to recognize that we're not monolithic. Yes, absolutely. So, you're absolutely on point, Mo. And the number one thing to remember, and I have been saying it for a very long time, it's about culture, not necessarily about language. So when these campaigns call up and say, I need a Spanish language ad like tomorrow, it makes one wonder, what did you do to learn about the Latino community, about the culture? How are we going to best communicate with them? Because it's not just doing your message in Spanish. It's understanding what their needs are and what they're looking for to be inspired and what they're looking for in a candidate. So if I could leave anything to um, your listeners today, it's first about culture and second about language. And if you're still thinking about translating everything on your campaign, you're doing the wrong way and you're not possibly going to win. Wow. Lorena, really, it has been amazing to have you on today and to hear your expertise. Thank you so much. And if I ever get to do this again, you'll come back with me. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. It's Mo Vela sitting in for Leslie Marshall, and I, um, I'm i having the time of my life. I'm so grateful to Leslie and Mark Grimaldi, her executive producer, for allowing me to uh, live out this dream. So my last and final guest um, is a very special man. He is uh, Dr. Olusegun Ishmael, who is an emergency room doctor in the Chicago land area, but in the rural areas, I have grown to admire him so greatly because he chose to use his medical training to help rural America. And I just frankly was getting frustrated by hearing everybody have an opinion on Medicare for all or not Medicare for all or 
a single payment payer system versus, uh, you know, giving up our choice of uh, the power of choice for insurance and so on and so forth. And the debate has gotten so nasty. And I thought, wow, I don't think I've ever heard from a medical professional, somebody who's in the trenches every day dealing with our healthcare system. So welcome. And we, by the way, everybody, we call him Dr. Ish. So welcome, Dr. Ish, to the show. Hey, Mo, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you on, Doctor. So, Doctor Ish, let's just jump right in. I, the first thing I want to touch on is, um, let's just start with the basics here. From a medical provider's perspective, which we don't get to hear very often, um, what what is your take? Is the healthcare system broken? And if it is, um, what, uh, from your perspective, can we do to start to fix it? So. Um, I have an interesting perspective on healthcare because I actually trained in a third world country. I trained in Nigeria. So I look at healthcare from a third world perspective. And then having grown up in the United States and being American, I also see healthcare from a first world perspective. But I have colleagues who work in Europe and countries where they have um, universal healthcare. And to quote a few of them, they would prefer a little a mixture of both. So when people say Medicare for all as a fix-all, it's truly not a fix-all because um, practicing day-to-day and then speaking with colleagues who are overseas, they're like, our system is not <laughs> the, the best either. Because um, one thing that we look at in our system here, it's, it's broken, truly broken. But what the answer is when you have a broken system is not to throw more people into the system. Is the analogy I use from a business perspective is you have an assembly line. And because the assembly line is not efficient, then you try to produce more and more widgets off the assembly line. You're not going to get any more better widgets. You may actually get the inferior products. And that's where my concern is for Medicare for All. One, we don't have enough physicians in the pipeline. Uh, we don't have enough physicians presently. We have an aging population, so we have more people in the system. We have a poor system in terms of malpractice, um, things that, so I, as a physician, if you come in with a headache, Mo, you tell me you have a headache, you may be a little dizzy, I'm getting a CAT scan. It's kind of a knee-jerk reaction because I don't want to go to court and explain to you or the court system that, oh, I didn't get a CAT scan because I thought you had a headache. So we practice defensive medicine, which also then tends to drive costs up. So if we have Medicare for all and we haven't fixed those issues, then truly we're just going to astronomically increase the cost, but haven't fixed the processes that need to be in place prior to that. So, so I take it from your, by the way, I, I just, I'm, in, I'm sitting here in awe listening to you because I'm so glad I invited a practitioner and a healthcare prov- provider on because I, I don't think we listen to y'all enough. And I'd like to, let me play just a devil's advocate for a second. I agree with everything you're saying. And 
Uh, I think the solution is exactly what you're suggesting, some type of a hybrid system, right? Uh, but but I, there are those who are advocating for Medicare for all who would say, well, n- what doctor is going to be for Medicare for all because their income is going to probably go down dramatically. I, I find that so offensive. Could you want to address that? Because I hear that a lot. Like, of course, doctors aren't going to be for Medicare for all. They're not going to be as wealthy. I don't think that even crosses y'all's mind, does it? But I, I find it very offensive because the majority of physicians, and I have been faculty um, with medical students and residents, and technically I'm still on faculty as a um, visiting uh, professor at, at Indiana University. So I find it offensive because most physicians and most people that go into medical school go there for a purpose. Either something has happened in their life or they have a need to give to back to the community. So the predominant reason why most physicians go into healthcare is not to make money. And I joke around even with my children today and said, don't go into the practice of medicine unless you truly want to help you because you can make a whole lot more money being owning a hedge fund or, or being an attorney. And you go home at night and you sleep at night um, and you're with your family, you're not on call. There are lots of sacrifices we make as physicians that people are like, oh, wow, you're a physician, you make a lot of money. And when you truly then look at it, as physicians, you still have the um, malpractice, you have student loans. So even if you're making a ton of money, just paying it all out, either to student loans or to malpractice, et cetera. So at the end of the day, you're truly not making a load of money. And you're providing an an incredible role for our people. So we, I find it very offensive when people say, and when my colleagues who are in Europe and England, uh, for example, say they're making less money. But the sad part of it is that there are lots of them that are fulfilled. Um, so I see no reason why somebody would say it's just because of the money. So, Dr. Ish, um, uh, we've got two minutes left, and I I wasn't planning to go there in this discussion, but I I just don't see how I don't address coronavirus. Um, It is uh, clearly reaching uh, what people predict will be pandemic levels. Um, Let's let's talk about it from a political perspective. Um, Do you think the president and his administration – appear to be doing enough to have uh, mitigated the risk and, and engaged in as much prevention as possible? Um, from a personal perspective, um, I do not believe so. I think we're still prepared for a pandemic. Uh, my only prayer is that the mortality rate of, of the coronavirus is not as high as other viruses have been in the past because that's the only thing that's truly going to be our savior, because at this point, we're not, I don't think we're monitoring enough. I don't think we're screening enough. I just had, we just had a debate in the ER today about can the state begin to even begin to screen on a, on a regular basis? Because I have patients who come in and they yeah. have flu-like symptoms, but they necessarily have not traveled or come into contact. But now we find out that not everybody, we have a case in California now, somebody who has not traveled to um, to Asia. Dr. Ish, I am, we're out of time. I'm so sorry. Thank you for being with me. What an incredible time with you. Thank you for enlightening us all. To Leslie and to Mark, my heartfelt gratitude. Thanks to all you who have been listening. I hope to be back again one day if Leslie will allow me.